This morning we are going to talk about the scriptures, if you didn't pick up on the theme of the songs. And to do that, I want to direct our attention to some church history this morning. Yay? Did I hear yay out there? There's like one person who was excited about that. All right. All right, let's take a look at the screen. In the year 1075, Pope Gregory VII said this. Let me know if you have any issue with this. The Roman church had never erred, nor ever by the witness of Scripture shall err to all eternity. That's an interesting, bold statement, isn't it? A couple hundred years later, Pope Boniface VIII declared this, which ups the ante, so to speak. He says, we declare, we state, we define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to come or to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Roman pontiff means the pope. So for salvation to occur, not what we talked about last week, sola fide, faith alone for our justification, he declared to say the implications of what he said is that every human creature to be saved, to have salvation, needs to come underneath, be subject to the Roman pontiff. Is this raising a red flag for anybody out there? Yes, head nods, hands. So, in the year 1517, when Martin Luther was known on October 31st for nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, they pronounce the W's like V's and it just sounds cooler when you say it that way, he denounced the practice of indulgences with 95 statements against this practice. There was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel who promoted these indulgences, and Pastor Chris referenced him last week. Um, this man was so frustrated at what Luther was saying that he called for Luther to be burned at the stake as a heretic. Why would he do this? Well, it was because Luther dared to challenge the Roman Catholic Church's claims. Luther dared to challenge the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. So, to respond to Martin Luther, Pope Leo, who was the Pope at that time, sent a man by the name of Sylvester Prierius. Anyone ever heard of him? Sylvester Prierius. And he sends this man, Prierius, to talk to Martin Luther to refute him on these claims. And if you thought these statements were bad, get ready for this. Prierius says this in 1518, a year after Martin Luther published his 95 Theses. He says that he who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and pontiff, the Pope of Rome, as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. But doctrine doesn't matter, right? What's the implication from this? Not only does the church have authority because of the Scriptures, they flipped things totally around. They said, Prieria specifically said, that the Holy Scriptures draw their authority and their strength from the church. Now that's a bold statement, isn't it? We have to learn history because those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Papal infallibility, that's the inability for the Pope to err in what he speaks ex-cathedral from the chair. This was not officially instated as a Catholic doctrine until the year 1870. But even at the time of Martin Luther and the Reformers, it was a universally assumed uh, truth in the Catholic Church. It was explicitly stated by some of those like Sylvester Prierius and others in history. But in the mind of the Catholic Church, she was the ultimate and final authority over the masses. Pun intended. Get it? The masses? All right, I had to. I wrote that down and I then laughed at myself as I was writing it. I was like, that's actually good. I should bring that up. But I want to remind us that as Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. In every single age throughout history, throughout church history, there has been an authority struggle. The question is, who has it? Who should it be taken from? How do we get it? 
And ultimately, people want to know what has the final say in their lives and in their practice. There is an answer, and I'll be very honest, this is going to be a little bit of a candid sermon just because this topic is so dear to my heart. Pastor Chris actually mentioned this last week, how sola fide was something that, that has stirred him for a long time. I, I'm from a generation that could not care less about authority. And so as a 29-year-old, barely with the millennial generation, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart for many, many reasons. There is an answer to the question of who has authority, but we by nature are repulsed by it. There is an authority over us, but by nature we want to suppress and push that aside because we don't want it. There is a God who reigns over all, who has the perfect and final say over all, who is perfect in his justice, in his goodness, in his truthfulness, and his holiness. Yet, if I could be really, really candid, many of us at times have lived in such a way that we would prefer it if he would just simply shut his mouth and move to the back seat so that we could drive the car. Has that ever been true in your life? It's been true in mine. We would prefer it if there was not an authority that ruled over us. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is going to be our main text for the day. Today we are covering sola scriptura, which means the scriptures alone. This does not mean that the scriptures are the only thing we ever listen to as Christians or human beings, but it does mean that the scriptures are our final authority in all matters of faith and doctrine and practice. So, let's pray together as we begin. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I pray that you would help me. Uh, This is a big task and I feel insufficient for it. I feel much of the time as though I'm more concerned about the opinions of other people than you. And I pray that you'd forgive me for that. And I pray that you would help me, embolden me, and empower me with your spirit to preach your word this morning. Your word is truth, and I believe that. And we believe that here today. So I pray that your spirit would do its work in us as we open the word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name together. Amen. All right. So... I thought about preaching a different sermon this morning. I thought about preaching a sermon that was to the cynic, the person who is very, very skeptical of the truth claims of the Bible. I thought about preaching a message that was filled with more truth claims, philosophical arguments. Uh, I thought about looking at the common places people say, look, there's inconsistency in the Bible, therefore it can't be true. And I thought about trying to address all the main ones this morning. But then I thought, I'm not sure that that is the audience here at our church. I think, by and large, most of us believe that this is true, but yet when push comes to shove, it's hard to consistently place ourselves underneath it. Would you guys agree? We do believe that this is true, but it's hard to submit ourselves to each and every word, to each verse, for various reasons, and we're going to touch on those this morning. So, let's open up the word. We're going to read the whole chapter here of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes this letter to a man named Timothy, and he says the following. He wants his pastoral protege to know this. He says, But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money. Does that describe us at all? It couldn't, right? They will be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, They'll be marked by ungratefulness. They'll be unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're going to have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. These women, they are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They are men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was those of those two men. Referring to Janice and Jambres. Verse 10, it says this. But you, Timothy, however, 
You have followed my teaching. You have followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's what we are talking about today. Paul warns Timothy that in the last days, in the final days, people are going to be marked by this list. And in reading through that, I couldn't help but look at our culture and think, yeah, that describes us, doesn't it? Unfortunately, so many of those words describe how culture generally is, and unfortunately at times, how some of us are even within the church. People will be lovers of self. In verse 4 it says, they love pleasure rather than loving God. This is a very interesting statement from Paul to Timothy, particularly, I think, because it's so revealing of our sinful nature today. This was not simply something that was a problem in the first century when the church was starting. These same things, Paul is warning Timothy with with wisdom, saying these same things are going to mark people in the last days. And we are, and as they were, in the final days, in the final age of what God is doing in the world. Paul states that people will love themselves rather than God. So rather than loving and submitting to God and his word, 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Instead of doing that, people by nature love and submit to a different authority, themselves. We see this everywhere. And this is the deception, we'll put this on the screen, this is the deception of the word autonomy. If you don't know how that breaks down, the original, the idea between the words is autos, which means self, and namas, which means rule. So literally, the idea of autonomy means I rule me. I am the law, I am the judge, I get to control what is true and what I ought to do. I'm autonomous, I'm individualistic, I get to rule. This word is, uh, this word is very true of the way that the age of the world operates. And in particular, in the United States, this is one of the things that's broadcasted and flaunted the most. It looks like this. It looks like statements that say, nobody has the right to tell me how to live my life. Have you ever heard that before? You don't have the right. How dare you tell me that I should do this rather than this? You don't know me. I want to take a look this morning at where this anti-authoritarian, where this self-rule actually began. Because I think this is very, very revealing as to what we're tempted to believe even today. So, keep your hand in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and flip all the way to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. You've probably heard this many times, but this is where it began. Genesis chapter 3. It says this, the whole the whole tone of the Bible, the first two chapters, changes right here in verse 3. Everything was good. God created this beautiful world. And then you hear these words. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You sense that a problem is about to happen? All of a sudden, in God's perfect world, there is a creature that we see, the serpent, who is crafty, who is shrewd, some translations say. He said to the woman, to Eve, and you can just hear the hiss, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the garden, Eve? Did he really say that? In that simple question, did God actually say, right there in that instance, 
Eve is tempted with autonomy. She is tempted with the idea to say, you know, I've never really thought before if God could be wrong or if God could be holding out on me or if God would only give me part of the truth rather than all of it. In an instant, she places herself, and this is where sin enters the world, autonomy. She places herself above the very words of God. This is seen in the beginning of Genesis, and we see this throughout the entirety of the scriptures. We've done this, uh, this, the last sermon series was in glory days, where we're looking at some of the stories of the first few kings. And it's, it's dark, because people want to rule themselves. You see this in the book of Judges, chapter 17, this, this, recurring, therm, uh, this recurring theme where it says, people did what was right in what? In their own eyes. Not right what was underneath and according to God's rule and God's law, but people did what was right to them, to me. I will be the arbiter of truth, thank you very much, and I will determine what things I will and will not do. Nobody has the right to govern me. I'm autonomous. And I want to say this, and I, I thought long and hard about this autonomy thing, and I really believe this. If you are tempted to disbelieve the truthfulness of the scriptures, which at times I think we all are, instead preferring your own ideas over that which God has revealed, there is nothing new under the sun. You are being tempted with a 6,000-year-old satanic lie. These words have been uttered before. Did God really say Jared, did the resurrection really happen? Because we know people don't just spring out of graves miraculously. Did that really happen? Whenever we are tempted to ask that question, we are putting ourselves in the driver's seat. We are being autonomous. And we are alluding to the fact that God just might be untruthful. That his character might be untruthful. And that the author of this word, therefore, is not true and cannot be trusted. And I just want to say very clearly that this thinking is not new. We've seen this in the Old Testament. We even see this at the time of the Reformation. We see people wanting to come over the law of God with their own, their own authority and with their own preferences. I think the Roman church would have, we, we're a little bit too harsh sometimes when we read into the Reformation. At other times we're not, but at sometimes we are. I think they would say, yes, God has authority. But deep underneath that, if you keep peeling back the layers, I think that they would say, yeah, but the final say does rest with us. God, yes, yes, it's true. His word is true. We would never say it's not. But with final say, really is going to rest with me. And I think that was the, the mantra, so to speak, of the, at the time of the Reformation. But I don't want us just to look at history. I want us to now look at ourselves. Because this is where it gets even more pointed. If ever there was a culture that was anti-authoritarian, it would be us, wouldn't it? And it didn't just start with millennials. I have to clear the record, okay? This was not a problem that started in the last 20 or 30 years. To prove that this has always been the case and this has been the problem with humanity, I want to not pick on, but yeah, kind of pick on, uh, one of the most wonderful singers of the last century, <clears throat> Frank Sinatra. Who loves Frank Sinatra? At least who loves his voice? Brian, I know you do. A phenomenal baritone voice made, made the top charts over and over and over again. Look at this song. This is the song My Way. He did not write these lyrics, for instance. A guy by the name of Paul Anka wrote these lyrics, but he thought of Frank Sinatra when he wrote them, so you can make the connection there. The song, I did it my way. That just screams with autonomy, doesn't it? Listen to the words. For what is a man and what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. He's got nothing if he doesn't have himself. I think the scriptures would disagree with that. But to say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. Yes, it was my way. You hear the in that? This to me is fascinating, and I'm a person who likes listening to Frank Sinatra at times. But this is fascinating because he's, he's saying in this song that to say the thing I truly feel, to get it off my chest, just to go ahead and unload and do what I want, is the mark of a man. The mark of a man is not the one who kneels before other people and kowtows to their opinions. Why? Because I can do things my way. This didn't just start with Frank Sinatra, but you've seen this really in the last century and probably 90% of the songs that have been written. 
Think of the Twisted Sister song. Anybody like Twisted Sister out there? You guys like the hair, right? The long 80s hair. We're not gonna take it. You've heard that song. No, we ain't gonna take it. This is a classic anti-authoritarian song. There's nobody that's gonna tell me how to run my life. Nobody. And if you move forward to songs like the Beastie Boys, did somebody just say woo-woo to the Beastie Boys? Oh, oh. You gotta fight for your right to what? Party! This mantra of sola scriptura is not the mantra of our age whatsoever. The mantra of our age is not the scriptures alone. It's sola ego, my will alone. How dare somebody tell me I've got to come underneath an authority. The only authority that I am ever willing to come underneath is my own. I kneel for no one but me. And you see this everywhere in our culture. Sola ego is the way that we live. No one has the right to tell me how to live my life. This is America. I'm free to do what I want, when I want, how I want, and ain't nobody going to judge me. How many times in the news have you heard something like this? It's all over the place. But I want to ask, really? Ain't nobody going to judge you? We have to be biblical in our thinking. I mean, honestly, is that freedom, getting to do what I want, when I want, how I want, is that freedom? According to our age, it is, but is, according to the scriptures, is that freedom? Not in the least. If you flip very quickly to Romans chapter 6, you'll see what real freedom looks like. And this is freedom found in slavery, actually. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? And here are your two options. Either of sin, your own autonomy, yourself, which leads to death, inevitably, and every time, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Those are the options. You can be enslaved to your sin, or you can be enslaved to God. In this is found death and destruction, and in this is found righteousness and life. Those are the only two options that we have. We were not created to be autonomous beings who reject God's authority over us. Loving ourselves, loving our thoughts, loving our own ideas, and our own control and authority. Simply put, autonomy is not the way of the follower of Christ. It's not. How do I know this? James 4, chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Submit yourselves to God. That's the call for us, to come underneath him and his authority. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20 makes this even clearer for the Christian. It says, you are not your own. You might be tempted to believe you are, but Paul makes it very clear. You are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus who shed and spilled his blood so that you could be forgiven and righteous. And because of that, it's not you anymore. Autonomy is not the way of the Christian. You might say, but where's the fun in that? I don't get to do what I want then. And I'll say, yup, you're right. Welcome to Christianity. Jesus, 101, says this, If any man would want to follow me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. The way of the Christian is never, has never, ever been, nor should it be today, I get to do what I want. The way of the Christian is submission underneath God's good and perfect authority. A quote from the Green Letters says, God dependence only begins when self-dependence ends. So we're going to move to the next point, which says, God has authoritatively breathed out the scriptures. Take a look at verse 16 with me. You've probably heard this many, many times. This is a very classic passage that talks about the nature of the scriptures. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. I think this God breathed is echoing Jesus' statement to Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights? And one of the temptations that Satan gave to him was bread, 
was food, right? But Jesus' response wasn't to succumb to that temptation from the hand of the enemy, but was to refute him with Deuteronomy chapter 6. <laughs> I've, I've said this, I think, before, but you know, if we had to uh, resist temptation by our knowledge of Deuteronomy from memory, how well would you think we would do? But Jesus believed and knew that every single word in the Old Testament was from himself, the incarnate word. It was from God. And so he says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? But by every word that comes or proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying that the Old Testament scriptures come directly from the mouth of God. And therefore, here you have Paul saying that the scriptures are breathed out by God. I don't think it can get any more clear than to say that we know that this is authoritative. Each and every piece of scripture, Old Testament and New, I'll talk about that in a second, is breathed out directly by God. Paul was writing this to Timothy about the Old Testament scriptures, but you'll see here in a moment that this also applies to the New. Paul knew full well that he was writing divinely inspired scripture. To some degree, he knew this. And I think Peter did as well and the other apostles. How do we know this? Very briefly, I can't belabor this too long, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 37 and 38, look those up later. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or thinks that he is spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul's writing this to the church. And er earlier, er, uh, in the epistle to the Galatians, Paul writes in the first chapter, defending himself and his authority as an apostle, he says, I didn't receive this from any man. It wasn't as if somebody told me this and now I'm professing it and that's my authority. He says, I received this directly from Jesus Christ himself. That's Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. The revelation that he had and the other apostles had to write the New Testament, to write the scriptures to us, they come from God himself. And so we can trust them. 2 Peter 3, this is one of the most fascinating ones. You could actually flip here for just a second because I want you to see the words on the page. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Peter writes this, and he's actually talking about Paul in his writings. Check this out. He says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them of these matters. This always gives me peace of mind. He says, There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yes. Okay, good. I'm not the only one. Even Peter had a hard time understanding some of the things that Paul wrote. These, there are things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Catch that? If Peter would have just wrote, as, he, as they do the scriptures, now he's just coming up with a point of analogy. These ignorant and unstable people, they twist uh, Paul's words just like they do the Bible. But he says, just as they do the other scriptures signifying that he knew that the things that Paul was writing were God-breathed. They were from his very mouth. Isn't that fascinating? This is one of my favorite passages to ponder and, and think about. Peter understood this. He said, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So, to some significant degree, they knew that they were writing Scripture. And all that to say, I'm just belaboring the point that everything in here we believe as Christians is God-breathed. Amen? I want to paint just a little bit of a picture here to help us understand another way of thinking about this. Uh, the perfect God who spoke everything into being, who never errs, who is the very definition of truth, who is the very definition of goodness, you know, when it comes to truth, you have, to, you have to think of it this way. God is the originator and fountain of truth. He's not true because the things he say are true. He's true because he's true. The things that he says are true because they are founded in him and in his character. So this is the God we're talking about. The God who is perfect in truthfulness, perfect in his goodness, perfect in his authority. So, how do we see this in the scriptures? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was ho hovering over the face of the deep. 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then it says this, And God said, Let there be light. And at an instant, things that were not created responded to his authoritative word, and boom, creation existed by his word. In Genesis 15, God spoke promises to a man by the name of Abram, saying, I know that you're really old and past the age of having kids. I'm aware of that, but I'm going to call you into a land that you've never been, and I am going to make your descendants from you directly as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And guess what? God made this happen with the nation of Israel. He speaks and things happen. In Exodus, God confronts Pharaoh because the man named with the position of the king of Egypt dared to profess that he was God, that he was divine. And he came up to him and said, Pharaoh, through the mouth of Moses, let my people go. If you choose not to listen to me, your entire nation is going to be ravaged and destroyed. Let my people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He did not obey the word of the Lord. And what happened? The entire country got completely wasted, devastated, and pillaged by the Israelites. God speaks and things happen. He speaks and the earth shakes. In Job chapter 38 through 40, this is one of my favorite passages because it humbles me every time. Job gets done off of his high horse complaining about his malady and complaining about the situations that he finds himself in. And then God speaks up. And he says, excuse me, Job, now it's time for me to ask you questions and I want you to brace yourself like a man because now I'm going to question you and you will answer me. When I first read that, when I became a Christian, I was like, oh, snap. This is going down right now. God is finally calling this man into account because by his word, at the end of those three chapters, it says Job puts his hand over his face and he shuts up because he realizes his place. Before the word of God, he shuts his mouth. In Matthew chapter 4, at his temptation, he speaks from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which I alluded to earlier, and the devil's mouth is silenced. In John chapter 11, it only takes three other words to a man named Lazarus who had been in the grave for four days. He says, Lazarus, come out. And a man who had been rotting for four days His flesh is instantaneously restored. Life is brought back into his body and he comes walking out of a grave. The God that speaks has authority. We do not serve a God that has not told us who he is, that's hiding behind a cloak, that doesn't want to be known. We have a God who speaks and things happen. Amen? And so when it comes to his word, we've got to think very carefully about this because the God who cannot lie, according to Hebrews chapter 6, does not speak lies and therefore he doesn't expect his people to believe lies. God is truth, he speaks the truth and therefore his written word, the scriptures themselves, are completely true in all that they communicate to us. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 5 and 6 says every word of God proves true. Every word. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then it says very, very quickly, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. God doesn't need any of our contribution. <laughs> he speaks authoritatively on his own. I think most of us in, this, in our church believe this. And I think that we would readily agree that yes, God has all authority and I need to come underneath him. But the problem comes is when there are two opposing wills. This is when marriages have issues too, right? Two people who have conflict, this way or this way, and something happens, a crisis moment happens, and we have to choose what's going to happen. We say God has authority, and we believe this, but yet when that authority rubs me the wrong way or it's something that I don't want to do, am I going to choose my will or am I going to choose his will? That's a hard question to answer because daily, Hundreds or thousands of times every day we're going to be tempted with this. In this moment, am I going to come underneath God's rule or do what I would really, really rather do? And that's hard. I think this simple illustration will be helpful. I was thinking about this. And I think at the time of the Catholic Church, in the 1500s, at the time of the Reformation, I should say, 
the Roman Catholic Church viewed the scriptures as an authority. Would you agree? Unauthority. Not the only authority. I think she also viewed herself as authoritative. And so gradually over time, when you, we did that quote from uh, Sylvester Prierius, he said, actually, the scriptures themselves draw their nourishment and authority from the church. So really, not just a sole authority up here, there becomes an equal authority which shifts very quickly to actually we're in charge. See how quickly that happens? And then in the last few hundred years, you see this in many ways. In the era, era of modernity, in the era of reason and enlightenment, even theologians, people who would profess that they believe the truths of God would say, you know, this, let's emphasize the fact that this was just a human book, not just a, a divinely inspired book, because there are some things in here simply that we can't prove, things that we can't believe based on science or things that we can't believe based on our own experiences. And so what happens, what happens to the sole authority? It gets shifted way down here, and now I am the one who deems what is true and what is not true from it. Does that ever happen in your own life? We're tempted to this all the time. And I would take it a step further and say, in our generation, in my generation specifically, we've done that. We've said, hey, we're postmoderns. What authority? There is no objective authority that can rule my life, that can tell me the way I ought to live, and that can give me truth. What is truth? We can't believe that. I have no idea what truth could be. So instead, I'm just going to believe whatever I want to be true if it suits what I want, if it suits my own fancy and suits my own preferences. And you see this everywhere in our culture. People don't even want to acknowledge the fact that it might have authority over them because they would prefer to do things their own way. And as I've said probably three or four times already, there is nothing new under the sun. Let's get very specific because I don't think it does much good for us to think about uh, sermons in relation to how they affect other people. Let's just lock in and think about yourself for a second. Think autonomously just for a second. <laughs> when it comes to you, where do you put yourself in relation to the Bible? Not in theory, not what do I like to say I believe, but what do I really do when push comes to shove? Do I let this rule over me? Or do I come over top of it? I think we would all like to say, oh, of course I come underneath the authority of the Bible. But do we really? I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that we cannot come underneath an authority that we don't know. Never before in church history have we had such access to the Bible. I counted I think I have 24 Bibles. I know that's excessive and I have a problem, and Paul does too. My wife knows I have a problem. I like having Bibles around me. It just gives me, I don't know, it gives me comfort. It's not a superstition. But never before have we had such access to the Word of God. We can have it for free on our phones. I'd encourage you to actually use a real Bible. Heads up, just see it and feel it. It's so good. But we have access to it on the go, on our phones, which is incredible. We have so many copies of this but never before in church history, and the statistics back this up, never before in church history had there been a group of people who call themselves Christians that have such high biblically illiteracy rates. If I said that correctly, you know what I'm saying. Never before have there been so many people that have such access to the word of God, but don't have any idea what it says. This is a travesty. This is a sad, sad reality. Biblical illiteracy is rampant throughout the church in the United States. I think that it's just not a good sermon unless you offend people. So, heads up. <laughs> I thought I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to. All right. This is going to be on both sides of the aisle, so you both can get mad at me later, and I don't really care. But... In uh, Romans chapter 13, who knows what that's about? Offhand, anybody? I'm just going to read one verse to you and just let the word do its work. It's about submission, right? Citizenship. It says this. Deep breath. Let every person, not everybody but you, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, this is what I'm assuming is happening right now. 
everyone out there who is a who calls himself a conservative and who is support support in support of Donald Trump will say, "Yeah, you liberals, you should respect our president. This is disgraceful and terrible." In which I would say, "I agree." Even if you don't disagree with somebody's every decision or their character or whatnot, we still need to respect the position. But I would say, how does that shoe feel on the other foot? The previous eight years, when President Obama was in office, I want to ask a very pointed question. How were your thoughts regarding him? Were they respectful? Were they in submission to governing authorities? Were the words that came out of our mouths in our conversation about politics, were they uplifting and for building up and for edifying, or were they to dig and bring him down? What were our Facebook posts like when our fingers are flaming at our keyboards and we're typing a post just to see, see what he's doing? Ugh. Every person needs to be subject to this. And what I'm convinced of is we can talk very clearly about God's authority. Yes, he has it. But when a verse like this happens and we have to think about our own lives very specifically and particularly about what we're going to do in a given instance, instantly we're brought forward with this temptation. I know God says this, but I really want to say this. And that's just politics. That's not even talking about worry. Jesus is crystal clear about worry. He says, stop worrying. I take care of birds in the sky and sparrows are worth nothing. I take care and clothe lilies of the field and make them beautiful. I'm going to take care of you. Stop. You're worrying about it. But so many of us are just consumed with worry. It's like, we know Jesus says that, but I know that's completely impossible to do. So I'm going to instantaneously ignore it and instead choose to do my own thing. What about the third area? And this will be very quick. What about gossip? What about that temptation when you're in a conversation with somebody and you say, I know I shouldn't say this, but stop right there. James chapter 3 says our tongue is like what? It is like a fire. And as soon as that catches and ignites something, the whole forest is set ablaze by it. When you think to yourself, I know I shouldn't, but right there you're falling into the trap to put yourself above the authority of God's word. And it happens Every day for us, we are so easily tempted to disbelieve that what God says is for our good and for the best for us. Which leads me to the next point. God's word is thoroughly profitable for you and for me. It's not as if we're coming underneath an authority that's bad for us. You catch that? Many of us think that to come underneath God means, all right, a life of sheer misery and depression and no happiness. Ooh. That's not what God has called us to. If we read the scriptures rightly, we see this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's good for us. It is good for us. It is good for four things. It is good for teaching. It instructs us of the ways of God and what God would expect for our lives so that we can live holy and righteous lives. It's good for reproof. And this is the one we don't like. Reproof means to show error or to show disapproval of something. So when it says that the scriptures are, are God-breathed, number one, authority rests in him, and they're good for us because they show us where we don't line up. And that's a good thing. It reveals to us our error, but it doesn't just leave us there. The third thing it do is it corrects us. It is profitable for correction. It can change us and say, yes, you're erring here, but there's still hope and grace for you. Colossians chapter 3 is classic for me. It says, put off all of these things of the flesh. Put off all these deeds of the flesh. And instead, put on the following things, which are righteousness. Put on love. Put on the fruits of the Spirit, as Galatians chapter 5 says. It doesn't just point to us our error and say, you're SOL. There's no hope for you. It, it gives us the direction on how to live our lives. And lastly, all of that is for training in righteousness. God is very serious about making us holy. He has redeemed us by his own blood to make us more like himself so that one day he can have a kingdom of priests in the new heavens and the new earth <clears throat> that look like him and that are holy and radiant without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. He's very serious about this, but we've got to come underneath his authority for that to happen. And if we don't, we are never going to become more godly just over time. People who don't submit to God's word will never become more godly over time. It won't happen. You're going to become more and more worldly. When I was 
first saved, I remember being in, uh, in my church, which I was thankful for, and I remember sitting in a high school men's Bible study. And I had gotten saved, and so I started in the book of John, and I was reading all the way through the New Testament, and every night I would read one or two chapters. I had like my, my little system down. Kelly, she knows I like systems. And I'm reading the scriptures, and every night I just feel like, I never knew this before. This is incredible. I'm blown away at the stuff that Jesus did. Is he really this good? This is unbelievable. And I loved every minute of it. And then I get to this high school guy's Bible study, and all of the guys are just sitting like this. Because they had been in church their whole lives, and they were bored to tears by this book. And I remember thinking, and I wasn't trying to be judgmental, but I'm thinking to myself, you guys don't realize what you have. I never knew the way of salvation. I never knew what God was really like. I thought he was mad at me. I thought he was an angry, angry father that only ever had disapproval for me. And now I open the scriptures and I see with my very own eyes the glory that's there. And you guys are like this and can't even stay awake for it. I'm like, this is astounding to me. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, familiarity does breed contempt or even apathy in our hearts. We get so used to the stories. Yep, I've read that one. I know that. Keep digging for the glory that is there. God is revealing himself to us and his glory changes us as we see it and are changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Don't let familiarity or contempt, or let it breed contempt or let it breed apathy towards the precious gift of the scriptures. The reformers believed that everyone should have access to the Bible, not just the Roman Catholic Church, not just the Pope's, but everybody should have access to this because they believe that this was the only God-given authority that will govern our lives and tell us what is true. Martin Luther, therefore, worked vigorously and tirelessly to translate the Bible from Greek, the New Testament, into his own German language. And it wasn't easy. He didn't have all of the study tools that we had. He wanted to do this so that the Christian, regardless of the amount of money they had, the amount of power they had, the amount of influence they had in their world, he wanted the peasants to be able to know God. He wanted them to know that they could have the ability to read the scriptures for themselves so that they would know God. Alistair Begg, a pastor, says, the real challenge for most of us today is not that we stop believing the Bible, but that we actually stop using the Bible failing to submit to the authority of the word of God in our lives and in our proclamation. It's not that we start disbelieving it inherently. It's just that we don't use it. We don't appreciate the gift that we have. Lastly, if you look at verse 17, the reason why God breathes out his word and it's profitable for us is it has an end. He wants the man or woman of God to be complete, equipped for every good work. And I want to say, I think the only way to really be complete, to be satisfied in life, and to have real lasting joy when the waves of life keep crashing in on us, is to be people who drink deeply at this well. If you don't, you're going to be subject to be tossed to and fro by the waves, and they're going to control you. You're not going to have any anger that's going to control your thoughts and your life and your practice. I want to give you guys homework. Is that, okay? is that okay, Kim? Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's by far the longest psalm. And because it's long, most people don't read it. But it is one of the most beautiful, one of the most precious passages of Scripture in all the Bible. The homework I want to give to everybody is to, this week, read through this psalm. Try to read through it every day. And think on how the writer of this psalm perceived the word of God. Because never once does he see the word of God and be like, ugh, it's an inhibitor to my will. Every time he sees it and he sees that it is precious and that it is a good gift from God. He says, starting in verse 97, I'll just read uh, six or seven verses. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation." I understand more than the aged because I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. 
Do you think he believed it was profitable for us? I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And some verses say sweeter than honey from the comb. And Dan, Dan Spoolstra just gave my family some honey from the comb. I'm not kidding you. It's like 10 times as sweet as the stuff you buy from the store. It's astounding. And that's the point he's making. It's, it's sweeter than anything else you could ever imagine. It's that good and profitable to equip us. He says, through your precepts I get understanding and therefore because of that, because I'm aware of it now, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my and a light unto my path. I have one final and gentle plea for all of us today. And it's one that does take work, but it's, I just guarantee you it's worth it. Please become a student of the Bible. Please read it study it, meditate on it, and enjoy the revelation that God has given to us. This isn't for the sake of getting candy thrown at you or for winning a prize or being better than somebody else or getting the pats on the back for being known as the theologian around you. Learn the Bible so that you can know God. That's it. Because the more we learn about him, the more we get to know him. And the more we get to know him, the more and more we fall in love with the God who has saved us from all of our sins. Amen? Amen. Please become a student of the Bible to know him. If you don't read the Bible for which people risked their lives for you to have, I'm wondering what that's saying about God's authority and your own autonomy. When at the Diet of Worms, which is a council in the city of Worms, Germany, when Luther was asked by the Catholic Church if he would recant and take back his words that he said regarding the indulgences of the Catholic Church, about the abuses of the Pope and about the abuses of church authority, Luther replied with a bold statement filled with clarity. And he says this. Go ahead, Andrew. He said, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, that means the, how we read it, the plain understanding, the obvious meaning of it, unless I'm convinced by Scripture... I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. Remember the pope that said the church had never erred, nor will it? Luther was kind of digging into that one a little bit. I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. It's held on to by the word of God. I can't go anywhere else. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to do so would be to go against conscience, and it's neither right nor safe to do that. So, the very simple question I want to leave with us in conclusion is this. Martin Luther's conscience was held captive by the word of God. Is yours. Let's pray together.